Jericho Road is a podcast and a Sunday school class and a ministry of St. Luke's Episcopal Church in Birmingham, Alabama. These days, we're looking at the whole Bible through the lens of living water, and we hope you'll join us. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to a new year and a new season of Living Water, where we're looking at Bible stories all through the Bible through the lens of water, stuff from the Old Testament, stuff from the Gospels, stuff from the letters in the back. And the reason why we're doing this is because the concept of water is an important backstory just about everywhere you look. Then is now, uh, Israel, or the world of Jesus, uh, was always a water-stressed place. It is water-stressed to the point that even modern Israelis think about water all the time, and they make plans accordingly. In, in the Middle East today, there are countries that don't have water technologies that are suffering greatly, like Jordan, and they're actually doing business with Israel so that they can get water from them, as the Israelis will desalinate seawater, as they'll use sewage to green the desert as they uh, use water or capture water and save water all the time. In the world of Jesus, they did the same thing. They would capture water in cisterns, try to catch the winter rains uh, in in vessels, if you will. But that water would get skunky after a while. So if you were to drink, you usually make wine uh, because that's something that could store. And then they would also save what they called living water, the name of this podcast, Uh, living water for worship and for washing. That was the most valuable water of all. That would be fresh water from a stream or a well or perhaps a fresh rain. So water is a big part of their everyday lives simply because they just don't have a lot of it, okay? And with water in mind, I am certain that if we were first century Romans sort of looking down at the religious people of Israel uh, or Judea and beyond, Uh, we would think that the Hebrews had the craziest religion because here in this water-stressed place, uh, the faithful would travel uh, days and days and days or weeks and weeks and weeks along pilgrim routes uh, to worship in Jerusalem. You might might say your prayers in your local synagogue in Galilee, for instance, like Jesus would, but at least one time a year, you would walk for five days uh, to, to Jerusalem for one of the three festivals, and you would do this annually so that the population of Jerusalem would swell from, say, I don't know, 35,000 people to a million or more in the festival. And this is this is a place with not a lot of water. So Jerusalem had to provide water for all these pilgrims. And if you remember back in uh, episode 12, we talked about Nicodemus and Jesus. And by tradition, and according to the Talmud, which is a commentary on the Hebrew scriptures, uh, Nicodemus is remembered as a very important person who was in charge of water to the pilgrims. I mean, water to the pilgrims would be uh, a, a big, big deal. And so they would they would swell the city, and these pilgrims would walk down uh, these pilgrim routes from north to south, uh, and they were, they were main kind of main roads, if you will. So from Galilee, there was a route along the banks of the Jordan River. Water's a big deal on this one because you've got to you're going down a crack in the earth called the Jordan River Valley, and you've got to stay very, very close to the river because without that water source, you're not going to make it. And then you've got to pack water in order to go through the Judean desert. By the time you get to the oasis of Jericho, another place of water, by the way, you would climb some 3,500 feet up out of the hole in the earth, if you will, uh, just to get to Jerusalem, which is about the same sea level as Birmingham today. I mean, it's a crazy place. That's just one route. There was a route down through the middle of, of Judea. It's more temperate. Uh, it did have water. It was uh, much prettier, and you got Mediterranean breezes. 
But the problem with that one is Samaritans live there. And we talked about Samaritans in the last episode, episode 13. Uh, and so, again, uh, water becomes politics. Water becomes power. Uh, water becomes something that the Samaritans can even sort of lord over them a bit because the Galileans would be using the, the hotter, drier place just to avoid uh, running into their enemies. Water, water, water. Okay, so there was another route. There were three. There was another route down the Mediterranean. We'll call this the Western route, the Via Maris, which was a Roman road, meaning the road by the sea. Uh, there's a highway today uh, that's built really along the, the same route as the Via Maris, uh, Highway 6, north-south. You can ride it today. Uh, but it was so out of the way that it was not likely used by Jesus. Jesus probably used one of the two or the Eastern routes, the Jordan River Valley being the predominant route and then occasionally the Samaritan way. And in all of this, there's a backdrop to the story. Um, remember that Jesus traveled finally the last Passover of his life. He was killed. He became the Passover lamb and then was raised three days later on Easter. That's the story of our faith. And so there's an Easter story in Luke's gospel, Luke's gospel alone. And the mystery is called Emmaus. It's a walk to Emmaus by men who are walking and talking about Jesus along the road. And then he, he appears to them. Uh, it's it's a mystery. There, okay, really, there are two mysteries. The first mystery is just the place of Emmaus itself. So let me read the story to you. Now that you know a little bit about pilgrim routes, a little bit about travel to the to Jerusalem for worship, a little bit about this last uh, time of Jesus' life, let's read the story and see if we can't see Emmaus in a new way. And I want to try to answer two questions when it comes to Emmaus. Luke chapter twenty four, verse thirteen. Now, on that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and talking with each other about all these things that had happened. This is Easter Day, by the way. While they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself came near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what were you discussing with each other while you walk along? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, whose name was Cleopas, answered him, are you the only stranger in Jerusalem who does not know the things that have taken place in these days? He asked them, what things? The things about Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, mighty indeed, and word before God and all the people, and how the chief priests and leaders handed him over to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. And yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things took place. Moreover, some of the women of our group astounded us. They were at the tomb early this morning, and when they did not find his body there, they came back and told us that they had indeed seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were just with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see him. Then he said to them, Oh, how foolish you are, and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have declared. Was it not necessary that the Messiah should suffer these things and enter into glory? In the beginning with the Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted them, the things about himself in the scriptures. And I'll paraphrase from him, but they invite him to a meal because the day has ended and he breaks bread with them. And then the scales fall from their eyes and they see that it's Jesus in his resurrected form and he vanishes from their sight. Uh, in verse 13 of the story, which is the first verse that I read to you, chapter 24, verse 13, it says that Emmaus is about seven miles from Jerusalem. 
And today, seven miles from Jerusalem, is a lovely crusader church commemorating this event, this meal, this appearance of Jesus on Easter. And it's pretty easy to find. Uh, Highway 1 is a road that runs west to Tel Aviv uh, from Jerusalem, runs right to the coast. And you stop at the Abu Ghosh exit. And I really like that exit because there's a place there called Naji, which is a kebab joint. That if for those of you listening to this podcast from Birmingham, it's the Middle Eastern version of Golden Rule Barbecue, right? It's a place just right off the road. It attracts construction workers and soldiers and business people from Jerusalem and and Hebrews and and Palestinians and, and just about everything in between because food is the one thing that binds everybody together in that part of the world. You know, for such a war-torn uh, part of, of the planet, if you will, there's one thing that brings them all together in the Middle East, and that's food, and that's because they all eat the same they eat the same things. I mean, a chopped salad, which appears on every plate, uh, which would be just cho- yummy chopped uh, cucumbers and tomatoes, it could be called an Israeli salad or an Arab salad, but it's the same uh, salad. We have a lovely Palestinian Christian family here at St. Luke's in, in Futine is the matriarch. She takes really, really good care of me. She's from a little town called Romley near Jaffa, and she cooks for me, and she makes the best baklava you've ever ever put in your mouth. And she was teaching me some words because it's so complicated there, but so many languages. You've got English and Arabic and Hebrew, of course. But then if you're an Arabic Christian, you use different Arabic words than an Arabic Muslim. So um, an Arabic Muslim would say, Salam Alaikum, when they see each other. A Hebrew would say, Shalom. Uh, but uh, but but Futin would say, as a Palestinian Christian, would say, Mahraba. It's it's fascinating that there's so many differences, and yet it's the food that keeps everybody together. And so over there at Naji, everybody is just munching down on the best grilled meat uh, you've ever had. And I guess I need to start stop talking about the food and start talking about Emmaus because the the Crusader Church is across the street. So if the Crusader Church is not the draw uh, for me, it's definitely the it's definitely the the chow, right? And that should be the end of things. Seven miles outside of Jerusalem on Highway 1 at Najee's exit, there it is. Except here's the mystery. It's not the only Emmaus, not the only one. About 20 more miles west of Jerusalem, on the same highway, there is another Emmaus, and this is where it gets complicated, because this other Emmaus is actually a town called Emmaus. It's not a crusader church marking Emmaus. This is a village that was called Emmaus before the world of Jesus. It actually existed uh, as best I can tell, during the period, the Hasmonean period, the period around 200 years before Jesus' birth. So it's not just a site, it's a town called Emmaus, so there's that one, uh, older than the world of Jesus, as I just said, and it's of military importance. Uh, battles were fought there uh, before before the birth of Jesus, and so now this is a place. You got a place with the name, but let's go back to the mystery. The Bible says seven miles, not 20 miles, or does it? Any good study Bible will have footnotes, and it doesn't have to be. It doesn't have to be an extensive study Bible. We've got these little pew Bibles at the church that we use that just do just fine, and they've got handy little notes in the bottom. And so, in our little red pew Bible, there's a note on verse 13 that says seven miles. And there's a note. You go to the bottom, and it says sixty stadia is a Roman unit of measurement that equals seven miles. And then the footnote will say, but others will say one hundred sixty stadia which means 20 miles. This means that there are ancient manuscripts, and you want to get the oldest one that you can. So I'll give a good analogy here. The world was just set on fire, 
in the middle of the last century because of the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Now, there are a lot of creepy books out there about the Dead Sea Scrolls because they had a lot of creepy stuff in them, uh, light and dark, and this this poetry that we call apocalyptic that's about the end of the world, stuff like that. But the reason why the Dead Sea Scrolls were so, I think, so important for us is because there were copies of the Hebrew Scriptures there uh, that were that were from the time of Jesus. Before we had copies of the Hebrew Scriptures that dated, say, from the 5th century, that was as old as you could go. With a manuscript, you want to get as old as possible. So the Dead Sea Scrolls prove that Jesus read the same Bible we do. That's, that's, the, that's the really cool part. So some manuscripts say 60 stadia. Other manuscripts say 160 stadia. I spoke with some friends in Israel, some scientists, actually, who, who think about these kinds of things. And the best theory that I've heard is simply that this is a scribal error. Now, remember, the world of Jesus is the world before movable type and before print. And monks would, would simply copy manuscripts over and over and over again. Books were copied by hand. And it's no stretch to think that some sleepy monk with a, a guttering, dim little candle made a mistake. He was supposed to write 160 stadia, and instead he wrote 60 stadia. And hence, a church was built across the parking lot from Naji uh, because of a mistake. Now, I think that's as good an explanation as any to think that that's why there are two Emmauses. And it would lead me to think that the, the Emmaus that's really there, that's really named, that's been on the map since before the world of Jesus would be the Emmaus. The other one is a mistake. Okay, but that's only one mystery. Let's just say we found Emmaus, okay? Now, now that we found it, it's 20 miles west of Jerusalem. We still got to answer a major question. Now, I've been trying to tell you that there were three main pilgrim routes that ran north to south, one along the Jordan River Valley. There's that one, the one most most often used by Jesus. That's in the east. One straight down the gut through Samaria, straight to Jerusalem, if you wanted to put up with Samaritans and put up with harassment. Uh, there's that one. And, and then, then they had the one on the western shore along the, the, the ocean, the Via Maris, if you will. That one runs south. But it's just way out of the way. In other words... This Emmaus that we found is 20 miles the wrong direction. It's the wrong direction home for Jesus. Remember what Jesus says in the, in the various gospels, but the, the message is always consistent. Tell the disciples and Peter, this is my favorite verse, it's found in Mark. Uh, tell the disciples and Peter that he's going ahead of you to Galilee, just as he promised. Going ahead of you to Galilee. Tell the disciples and Peter, meaning Pete, don't let Peter behind. Peter denied me three times. He's, he's in hell right now. Make sure Peter knows that he's forgiven. And then at the end of John chapter 21, which will be a future episode in this in this podcast, um, the, the curse is reversed. Peter gets to say, I love you three times instead of I deny you three times beside the water. Uh, in other words, the resurrected Jesus doesn't stay in Jerusalem. He's headed back to the Galilee, uh, which is the place of the lake, the place of the, place of the water, the, the most pretty, the prettiest little lake you, you'll ever see. Uh, he's going back home. But Emmaus is not in that direction. It's 20 miles going west and south and picking up the Via Maris, which means a, a major loop out of the way. So that's the second mystery. Why Emmaus? Well, I've got a possible answer. And it's found in a place nearby, very near Emmaus, called Bet Shemesh. And it's the location of a story found in 1 Samuel chapter 6. It's a good story. I'll tell it to you, and then I'll read a couple verses to you. Um, in 1 Samuel chapter 4, the Ark of the Covenant is captured in battle. And let me explain. 
Half of the book of Exodus is all about the design of a tent and then an ark to go within it. The, and within the ark was a copy of the Ten Commandments and, and some memorabilia from their wanderings in the desert. In other words, the ark would lead God's people through the wilderness for 40 years and then into the promised land. Uh, Joshua would carve out land uh, through battles and exploits uh, for God's people. And then the ark would rest for centuries at a place called Shiloh in a tent. That's where it rested. And the priest Eli, who was the priest who, who consecrated Samuel as a prophet, so the book of First Samuel, First and Second Samuel are all about that prophet, uh, had two pretty ne'er-do-well sons, and they were pretty awful. And, and th- because it was an inherited position, they just sort of ran over people. And they had this bright idea that, that if they fought the Philistines uh, just west of Shiloh, over a mountain, if they fought the Philistines in a, in a field of battle, they could take the ark with them. And that God would be like a totem, if you will, uh, a, a totem meaning like a lucky rabbit's foot or, or an amulet that would protect them and no harm could come to them. Instead, what happens is they lose the ark in battle. The Philistines take it. A runner um, comes right back over the hill and, and tells Eli that his sons have been killed in battle, which distresses him greatly. But when the runner tells Ellie, and we say Eli, but it's Ellie, uh, when the runner tells Ellie that the ark has been taken, he drops dead. He, he, he drops dead of a broken heart. The ark is lost to them now. So this box that contains the Ten Commandments, the covenant of the, the God, the, the divine mind that God wrote down on a piece of rock so that they would have six, six precepts for each other and four precepts for God. In other words, 10 total ways that we could be in communion with God and our neighbor, they're now gone. And they belong to these awful sea people, the Philistines who have uh, their own little pagan gods and own ways. Well, here's what happens. They have the ark and it becomes a hot potato of sorts because everywhere the ark goes, there become these these plagues that, that, that happen to the Philistines. Hey, we know about that. We've seen the movie, right? Harrison Ford, you don't mess with the ark of the covenant. Except the Bible tells us that these are two specific plagues that sound pretty nasty to me, but must have meant a lot to them uh, living in the Bronze Age. They were afflicted with both tumors, ooh, tumors, and mice. So infested with mice, tumors on the body. So it's passed from city to city, uh, places you can find on a map today. These are Philistine towns, Ashdod, Gath, Ekron, and then finally in Ekron, which was the closest of these cities to Bet Shemesh, which would be, which would be, and it's called House of the Sun is the name of the town. It's, it's the nearest Israelite town, if you will, to Ekron. They finally decided to get rid of that thing. And what they do is, is no less miraculous. They, they put it on a cart, the Ark of the Covenant, between two milch cows. These are cows that are, that are, that are bred uh, for their milk and they've recently calved. And Edan tells me, and, and I don't know anything about cattle, but he does because he did this on the kibbutz. You can't get a mama cow away from a calf. And yet, miraculously, these two milk cows uh, walk away from their own uh, babies, if you will, pulling this Ark of the Covenant. And so the cart pulls in a straight line from Ekron to Bet Shemesh, and the people rejoice. I'm going to read it from here now. So this is 1 Samuel chapter 6, verse 13. Now the people of Bet Shemesh were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley, and when they looked up and saw the ark, they went with rejoicing to meet it. The ark came into the field of Joshua of Bet Shemesh and stopped there. A large stone was there, so they split the wood of the cart and offered the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. And the Levites took down the ark of the Lord and the box that was beside it, and on which it were gold objects, and set them on the large stone. 
I'll pause here. I didn't tell you this part. So a way that you would heal in those days is you would make a you would make a golden image or make an image of whatever's bothering you. So if you would go to the place of healing and your knee is bothering you, you'd make a make a statue of a knee or make a statue of your hand or your eye or anything else that might be giving you trouble. You would take that and make it as an offering to the gods. So this 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 cart had images gold golden images of tumors and mice. So it sounds weird to us, but not to them. Then the people of Bet Shemesh offered burnt offerings and presented sacrifices on that day to the Lord. And when the five lords of the Philistines saw it, they returned that day to Ekron. These are the gold tumors which the Philistines returned as a guilt offering to the Lord, one for Ashdod, one for Gaza, one for Ascalon, one for Gath, one for Ekron, and the gold mice, according to the number of all the cities of the Philistines belonging to the five lords, both fortified cities and unwalled villages and the great stone beside which they set the ark of the Lord is a witness to this day in the field of Joshua of Bet Shemesh. Okay, here's the drama. In late 2019, right before the COVID lockdown, they found the great stone upon which the ark rested. They found it. And so during the COVID lockdown, they have been uncovering uh, the village of Bet Shemesh around it. I've discovered that the great stone sits now within a chapel that was built for it. I think as best as we can tell, they took the great stone from the field of Joshua, which exists to this day, built a worship space around it for sacrifice, uh, and you can now see the stone upon which the Ten Commandments rested. It's the closest we'll ever get, the closest I'll ever get in my lifetime uh, to touching something or seeing something that was touched by God in this way. You can see a rock upon which God's own Ten Commandments rested. The people of Bet Shemesh hallowed that stone. It is the same dimensions as the Ark of the Covenant, built a chapel around it, and it is a national sensation. It's just not open to the public yet, but it continues to be uh, studied and observed, and it is it is definitely uh, the rock upon which, uh, which the Ark rested in 1 Samuel chapter 6. It's sort of like a Washington slept here kind of thing. Bet Shemesh never had anything good happen to it except the ark was returned there. And so when it went on uh, to another city before eventually resting in the capital city of Jerusalem, uh, it, when David brings it home, this is the biggest thing that ever happened uh, for this little place. And so they commemorated it, and you can see it today. Okay, here's the lesson. The sons of Eli learned it, and then the Philistines learned it. God is not a totem. God is not a totem. That, that is the lesson. God is not meant to be uh, used as a lucky rabbit's foot. Uh, God is not to be used as an amulet uh, to ward off evil, but rather God is to be respected and, and recognized, right, as, as everywhere. And this is not just a Jewish problem, and it's not just an Old Testament problem. I've got another story about a totem, and I think, then I think I can, can land the plane, if you will, and answer the mystery of the, of the Emmaus being so way out of the way. On July the 4th, 1187, in the land of Judea, uh, July 4th, 1187, the leaders of the crusader states of the Levant were lured into battle by the Sultan Saladin. Uh, The battle site is an extinct volcano very near the Sea of Galilee, and Saladin actually used the heat of summer to literally, and the lack of water, to, to defeat the army. He literally cooked them in their own armor. He lured them into to the top of this, this, this mountain called the Horns of Hattin, and he surrounded their armies, and he built fires. Now, the, 
the Crusaders had this one super weapon. It was the it was the war horse, and they could use this to to break through you know any kind of any kind of barrier. And so as they launched an attack upon Saladin and his soldiers, they simply opened up their ranks because see the horses could see the Sea of Galilee in the background, and they couldn't be stopped. They were so thirsty and parched from the heat that they simply ran away, and that neutralized this threat. In the end, the Muslim defa- armies either defeated or killed the vast majority of all the Crusader forces and removing removing really their capacity to wage war forever. In other words, the 90-year kingdom of Jerusalem, in effect, came to an end right there at that battle. Here's my point. When the Crusader states were lured into battle up there in the north in the Horns of Hattin, they carried with them what they believed to be the true cross, the true cross. Now, the true cross is an icon that you'll hear about from time to time. There was a battle early in the Russian invasion of Ukraine that involved the True Cross. It was a ship called the Moscow that was sunk by a Ukrainian missile, and it carried an icon of the True Cross on it. The story of the True Cross simply means that when when Helena, the mother of Constantine, discovered Golgotha and built the Church of the Holy Sepulchre over it, which you could see today, uh, she also claimed to have found the cross upon which Christ had been had crucified. Now, I don't, I don't think scientifically that this is actually possible, but they believed it and they venerated it. And my point really is to say that for 800 years, they carried around something that they thought Jesus had died on. So they carried that cross into battle thinking uh, that nothing would happen to them, just like they didn't read their Bibles, right? Just like Ellie's sons thought that bringing the Ark of the Covenant would protect them from battle. But God is not a totem. God's not to be used in that way, which brings me back to Emmaus. I believe that it's very possible that on Easter, Jesus still recognized the danger of his being misused, especially the danger of his being misused in a resurrected form as a totem. Remember, the the, one of the reasons why he was even done in in the beginning was because he refused to be a general in the way that they wanted to be a general. He refused to be a king in the way that they wanted him to be a king. They wanted someone to kick the Romans uh, out of their world. And what better is, is someone who could be raised from the dead, right? He was dangerous on that day. He had to travel a route where people didn't know him until he could get back to Galilee and explain. I believe this is why Emmaus is out of the way. He's walking the Via Maris because he can go incognito and he can begin his new mission. Jesus needed to get back to Galilee where the air was clear and it was quiet and they could think and listen so that his disciples would know that now it's their turn with no totems, rather the Holy Spirit to guide them and the church would be born. So I hope I've perhaps gotten you thinking about Emmaus in a new way and perhaps even solved two mysteries. But here's my question for the day. How do we use God as a lucky rabbit's foot? Well, once again, thanks, everybody. Let's keep it going in the new year. Bye.